Are you struggling with your private practice? Do you need ideas about how to expand and grow your mental health practice? Would you like to listen to seasoned experts share their successful strategies and story of success? You've come to the right place. Welcome to Psych Biz Season 2. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 3 of Psych Biz. I'm Howard Baumgarten, and it's a privilege and honor to be with you today once again. I want to personally thank you, the listener, for your comments, feedback, and really participating in what's becoming a wonderful community of sharing and learning together in regards to all things private practice. So thank you for your participation, for listening, and for sharing about our podcast with others. We're grateful. Last spring, Sarah and I came up with the idea that it would be fun to start interviewing experts in the area of practice development, not only who build themselves as important people who know how to build a strong private practice, but who also themselves have been or are psychologists or clinical mental health people. And so we decided to start this journey. And in our last, more previous episode, you heard from my friend Donald Altman. Today, we're going to hear from Chris Stout. And of course, in our next episode, you'll hear from Lynn Grotsky. These three people are phenomenal folks who have been instrumental in my practice development, and I'm sure some of you already know of these folks. Uh, We sat down with Chris in late spring 2021 and had a wonderful conversation about his endeavors related to humanitarianism, his Center for Global Initiatives, his writing and Uh, research and podcasting that he does himself, as well as, of course, the landmark books that he wrote on practice development. I am so pleased to bring you this interview. You know, Chris is uh, really done so many different things over the course of his career. He's a LinkedIn influencer with over half a million followers. He's the founding director of the Center for Global Initiatives and an APA International Humanitarian Award winner. He's been featured in uh, prominent books and magazines and interviews. He's had guest appearances, and he has lectured and provided keynote addresses all over the world in his particular areas. So without further ado, Sarah and I are proud to bring you the interview that we shared with Dr. Chris Stout. Enjoy. Sarah, I am so excited. We have a wonderful guest on our show today. His name is Dr. Chris Stout, and I like to call him my friend. We met uh, a while back in early 2004, 2005, Uh, really a happy accident, and uh, we'll, we'll hopefully talk a little bit about that. Dr. Stout is an amazing human being who has done so much throughout his long career. I know he has much more time and more career left in him. He is a psychologist, a trained psychologist, author, humanitarian, uh, LinkedIn influencer, and so very much more, including a podcaster. We're so excited that you're here, Chris. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on PsychBiz. Absolutely. It's an honor. I'm anxious, or anxious to talk and great to see you. 
Yeah, great to see you. You know, um, I discovered you uh, when you came out with the book that's right behind me, uh, <laughs> getting started in private practice. And I think you published that in 2005, if I'm, if I remember correctly. Very good. Um, yeah. I, I was teaching my course on private practice, uh, at university of Colorado and looking for, um, really just a, a meaty book with, with lots of, uh, techniques and strategies and really good resources. And I absolutely love just, just how much information you put into that book. And then you later came out with an edited book, Getting Better in Private Practice. And it just really allowed me to build even more uh, resources for my students. And you were gracious enough to, um, you know, be willing to uh, allow us to use your book. And, um, you know, I, I'd like you to share with our listeners, uh, first off, how you got involved in a project like this. Uh, great question. Um, the uh, um, genesis of it was sort of uh, an iterative process. Um, I had gone through a professional school program and the idea of it, while there was a heavy uh, component of academia and research and a traditional dissertation, um, a lot of it was really sort of focused, a lot of myself and my, my classmates were expecting to go out and go into private practice or go into some kind of practice and probably eventually back in that era with the dinosaurs, the, you know, the big goal was to go into private practice. And I was kind of always waiting for that class. I had professional issues, I had ethics, I had this, I had that. And no one really kind of talked about deconstructing the nuts and bolts of, you know, well, how do you actually start a private practice? So um, I, as a lot of people did, you know, apprenticed, if you will, um, and worked in private practices as an employee, uh, saw experiences by virtual practicum and internship and postdoc of what it was like to work in a hospital, work in a private practice and work in different venues. And by virtue of that, you started to learn like, well, how does billing work and how does marketing work and how does, you know, release arrangements for your offices and all these other kinds of things, you know, come together. So that's that's percolating and, and moving along. And then, um, as you know, I, I like to write and I was doing a lot of research in a variety of different kinds of areas and had some uh, books come out prior to this and had a real working relationship, very nice uh, working relationship with John Wiley and Sons and had done some prior work with them. And the, um, my, my iterative process was, as I, I was also teaching in a couple of professional schools and a couple of colleges of medicine, and I would always try and insinuate the private practice aspects into whatever I was teaching. So if it was an ethics class, then we talk about marketing and we talk about, you know, appropriate kinds of billing. Well, how does billing even work and how does insurance work and how people get there? Some people inadvertently get themselves in the crosshairs because they've inadvertently tried to be good to their patients and give them a cut on their what their hourly fee is, but find out inadvertently that that's against their contract with their insurance company and uh, the, who's paying them, and that could be considered fraudulent and nefarious and all these other kinds of things. So there's a big component of risk management to that as well, which I felt was very appropriate in an ethics class. When I was teaching ob objective assessment, I could teach people how to score an MMPI and an intelligence test and a this and that, but people had no idea how to bill for it. People had no idea, you know, how much does it cost to have, you know, a computer program to score your stuff and how, you know, what's a CPT code? What's a CPT code for testing? All these kinds of things that really, again, the good part of our training, and I'm sure yours was the same, is that you learned how to do the appropriate work clinically and ethically, but you had no idea, you know, coming out of like, 
like, you know, how to, to, to manage. So I would give these talks, I would bring it into my course lectures, and I found that students really did like it. So then I started going to outside kinds of talks at our state association meetings and APA, and I'd get good feedback from other people and say, hey, you know, this was good, but I'm really kind of curious about how this works or how that works. So I would keep notes and then I would add that to my next iteration of the next class. And then finally got to the point of just saying, well, I have all these notes. I have all these class lectures. You know, I should probably, you know, kind of consolidate this and just, you know, make it easy for people and put it into a book because I was like you, I couldn't really find a book that was, um, you know, hitting on all the high notes of, of kind of what I wanted to, to put together. So I pitched it to Wiley uh, for those in the audience that are interested about writing and things like that. Um, I also, it's actually kind of part of a series. So back in the day, Wiley was very much into series. They have a series on uh, treatment planners that Art Youngsma did. Um, they had a series uh, before I came along on various psychological kinds of tests. Uh, I forget exactly what they were called, but there were these small little books that um, was like a like a, a brief um, few pages, not, not small, but I mean, physically small, um, talking about IQ testing or talking about personality testing or something like that. And they had a series of 20 some odd of those. So I actually pitched them with the idea of a series of getting started in. And the first one was getting started in private practice because it was kind of an umbrella. But then I also, there's also uh, getting started in forensic practice um, that uh, I did with a colleague, uh, getting started in coaching practice that I did with a colleague. And then um, Wiley kind of changed directions and they weren't real into the uh, series books. So we went on for a few years with that and then it just sort of you know, died a natural death. And then Wiley came back because thank goodness um, the book was, was still selling well. It had a nice shelf life to it because it's sort of, as you know, it's one of those basics. Um, it's sort of like, you know, how do you put together this? How do you put together that? And a lot of people coming out of graduate school um, don't know how to do that. So they said, hey, you need to do a second edition. And I was like, oh, I don't want to do a second edition because... If you go to Amazon and you see there's a first edition and a second edition, you always buy the second edition, you know? And I thought Excel hasn't changed and spreadsheets haven't really changed and accounting hasn't really changed. So um, there's really nothing for me to say new about this. So I thought I really wanna have a companion book where I don't, I'm not in competition with myself. So I said to Wiley, let's, let's keep getting started as is so people know, you know about getting started, but let's come up with kind of a, a cousin that's you know, getting better at it. So I've already started my private practice. Now, how do I get better at it? So as you mentioned, this one turned out to be edited because I thought times had changed and you know, I wanted to bring in all the different, not all, but a lot of the different kinds of flavors of of practice that are out there that I was not an expert in, like sports psychology. So I went out and, and recruited a friend that was a, an excellent sports psychologist and other people that were really great at marketing and other people that are really good about um, websites and digital this and social media that and uh, electronic medical records. So all these kinds of things, I thought, I'm, you know, I could spend three years trying to research all this and then trying to write about it, but why don't I just tap my friends and, and, and make new friends and colleagues to have them write about that and they can be published. Um, you know, they'll, they're the great people that then, you know, have people reach back out to them and say, hey, you know, I read your, your chapter in this book. Could you tell me more about this? Could I hire you as a consultant? So we wound up doing it that way. So it's a long story for a simple question, but it's been been a nice run uh, with them and they're still you know very popular. So um, I'm very proud of them. And, and obviously it also creates opportunities for me to meet people like you. Well, I really appreciate what you said about the two differences, the, the main differences between 
between the first and the second because that's why when I was teaching the curriculum at BU, uh, they we were using both versions mm. at one point because Super. the your your book, the first uh, getting started book that you wrote with uh, uh, another co-author was very much the nuts and bolts, like you were saying. And what I loved about what you said in your answer too is this whole idea of how do you blend business concepts with ethical, responsible clinical behavior. And you know that's how that was the that spoke to me a lot because those are the principles that I built my curriculum on and how I do my consulting. And so uh, that became an important part of your resource. And then with the Getting Better series, I think you did a great job of not creating competition for yourself because all these other experts weighed in with different perspectives. And the way I look at that second book is really a series of, of essays on how to be better at business in private practice. And you're right. There are so many other people involved in that project that folks from my class would go reach out to them or say they like this person and why, and maybe, you know, why they like that one better than the other. And, and it, it really stimulated a lot of great conversation in my, in my classroom. And so I'm, I'm grateful to you for that. And I know so many people are grateful that you wrote both of these, you know, that you edited the second one, you wrote the first one. And, um, and of course, I'm grateful that you uh, wrote the forward on my private practice essentials book. And hopefully all three of them are so distinct and separate because I do think that when you ask experts different ways of approaching private practice, you're always going to get something a little bit different and maybe even a lot different. And folks mm -hmm. need to have different perspectives. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. One size fits very few. And again, you know, back right back at you with your book i think it's it's sort of it's interesting to me to have something that was just sort of rarely talked about certainly in graduate school when when i was in um and that is so critical because you know i, I remember i did a um, another article uh called but you signed a contract you know about about like how to you know vet a contract and how to you know look at these things and there's so many easy ways that you can you know be just a you know uh, walking down the street and, you know, get waylaid by something because you just didn't know what the right questions to ask. And it's not that it's complicated, um, but I think, you know, through through your work and through the work of the contributing uh, authors to getting better and to the, the fun I had with the development of getting started um, just really does speak to how there is such variation and there's different kinds of considerations that uh, that you have that play in. And then there's still some fundamentals like, you know, the economics of it and, and budgeting. Yeah, we, um, th there's a whole new um, uh, uh, division within psychology itself that is the business of how we run our uh, clinical work. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm, I'm honored and proud to be uh, among folks like you who have done amazing work in that. And that's not all you've done. I mean, that's so little compared to so many other things. And I want our listeners to learn so much more about you and how you've expanded your uh, uh, touch on society used, you know, from within all, all who you are, from, from the role as a psychologist, humanitarian. And so I know Sarah is dying to ask you a question, so I'm going to turn it over to her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, just one of the things that we often talk about on our podcast and with our listeners is different ways that practitioners can stretch themselves and try to do different things that might be outside of their comfort zone. And 
you know, I think in a lot of ways, you're an example of someone who's done that successfully because you're involved in a lot of different um, socially relevant causes. Um, you're writing the Center for Global Initiatives that you founded, um, your podcast, like you do all of these different things. So maybe you could just talk a little bit about how you've incorporated all of those different things and all of those different areas of focus kind of cohesively into what you do and, and been able to do so much. Okay. Um I, I don't know that it's been cohesive, <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, you know, it sort of feels like, um, you know, it's, it's part of the secret of this is just, you know, living long enough and, and doing a lot of stuff, you know, over the course of, for me, you know, it's been like 35 years. So, you know, it just adds up over time. But, um, you know, I've, I kind of have referred to and written about being an accidental humanitarian, and maybe that that's a, a way to approach answering your question. Um, it never was like I took a class in humanitarian intervention. I didn't, you know, there, there wasn't a specific direction um, in that way. But nevertheless, I feel like it's good to have a direction. And for me, psychology, personally, I think for a lot of others, um, gave me a lot of tools where I could go in those different kinds kinds of directions where I could, there are a lot of times where I was like, you know, quote unquote, the only psychologist in the room where I could kind of bring in some of my training that might be relevant to, to what was going on. Um, I also got very active in the American Psychological Association. I got very active in my local, which was the Illinois Psychological Association. Um, that then got me involved in um, political advocacy for uh, patients and patients' rights and uh, access to care. Um, did that on a legislative committee um, in Illinois. That grew into being a federal advocate, uh, advocacy coordinator for the APA. And I did that for 12 years. That then got me to uh, the Hill. Every year we would go and you know, meet with our elected officials and present. And, you know, that was kind of anxiety producing, but it, that, you know, that then brought in with it advocacy, uh, politics, understanding how, you know, that whole process, legislative process went at the state and federal levels, um, a bit of leadership. You know, you're we're always writing a column about what you're doing, always encouraging people to back then to write or, you know, nowadays to use some digital means to reach out to their elected officials um, and feeling, you know, and feeling good about that. Um, that then grew to, I always had an interest in international kinds of work. Um, the APA um, has a position uh, for non-governmental organizational status, NGO status with the United Nations. Um, parallel that now, we were starting uh, our conversation with Howard about the books. Um, I was also writing in that arena uh, with a different publisher, with Prager, and um, was elected and, and made it into doing a stint with the United Nations for a year in the late 90s. This is obviously before 9-11. And I was like the first person to go out. I, on my own dime, would fly out to New York every month to the United Nations and attend meetings and participate, which was heady and great. So my other publisher heard, had heard about this and she said, oh, I've got a guy you got to meet. His name's Harvey Langholz. Um, he works under Madeleine Albright, who was um, ambassador to the United Nations as Secretary of State, blah, 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 blah. So he and I got together and um, he had done a book called called uh, The Psychology of Peacekeeping. Um, I had now, by this point, developed a, a nice cadre of friends and colleagues, kind of more from the psychological side. He, was a, uh, he is a PhD uh, social psychologist, uh, most recently at the College of William and Mary. And uh, we put together a set of talks uh, around the psychology of diplomacy. And then we did, um, uh, collected those talks and then put them into a book. So to your point, it's sort of like all of these different kinds of things, you know, you could kind of focus on it from an advocacy perspective in terms of being active 
in doing things. You can focus on it from more of a writing or academic perspective of giving talks and lectures and bringing it into the classroom and then you know, culminating in a book. Once you do a book, then that leads to typically more lectures and talks and things. That then broadens out your network to be able to start to meet other people or people that were in your book that introduce you to their colleagues because they know that you have this focus that might be similar to another friend's. And that just, you just cultivate that. Um, early on for advice as, as best as can fit to others, um, you know, I was always saying yes to everything, you know, to a fault. Uh, my worst year, I think was around 1999. I was traveling so much. I flew over 100,000 miles. Uh, I missed my birthday, my wife's birthday, my son's birthday, my my daughter's birthday and my wife and I anniversary. And it was just sort of like, it was a bit too much um, for me and for them. So it's sort of like, okay, I need to kind of tap the brakes. But I think there, there's a lot of, of arcs in people's careers in their work where you're really, you know, you're, 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 you're grinding it out in, in undergrad or graduate school or your first few jobs and that type of thing. And then you get to a point where you kind of, you try these things, see what fits, see what doesn't fit, discard it. And I was really, you know, I probably spent, you know, mid-career, probably 10 years-ish uh, trying on these different kinds of things and, and letting go of some and, and keeping some on and keeping some on and going, you know, more full full throat into it. So, so that's just kind of a, a generic aspect of it. The, the personal side, um, I like to climb. I'm, I'm again, like I like traveling. So one of my goals was to try and climb the seven summits, the tallest mountain on each of the seven continents. And kind of my first big climb was Kilimanjaro, which is a good starter and just sort of unbeknownst to me, uh, this is 92. Um, I met a fellow who was um, working as a porter. Long story short, um, he and I became just very close friends. And that's ultimately come to uh, culminate in our collaborating over the last, well, since kind of since 1992, but more seriously since um, probably about 12-ish years ago. And we helped develop a kindergarten. We continued there. I started my nonprofit to help support them. So all of these things kind of, you know, the climbing leads into that, the travel leads into that, the wanting to help a friend out leads into that. And all of those things, again, with a very nice, wonderful, collegial network of people that are willing to, you know, roll up their sleeves and, and lend a hand. Um, it's just all kind of, you know, are, are, have been the seed planting and the saplings that now, you know, are bearing fruit. With with uh, with regard to um, what you said about mid career and having and I was co I'm coming back to the 1999 years is you were talking about balancing personal with work and realizing you know what it takes to to, to balance which is something I think a lot of clinicians struggle with is that that work life balance and can can you say a little bit more about that and and how you what you learned from that year and and how you made some different decisions. Yeah, it um, it becomes kind of a an issue of really making some separations, um, having a willingness to start to say no to things. Um, it's always very flattering. It's always very much an ego boost, you know, when someone says, oh, would you, you know, write a chapter for my book? Would you, um, you know, come give this talk? Would you, you know, help me out with this or that? And if it was something, um, it was almost like, there were, there, it was probably stretch goals for me with some things where I felt like, well, you know, I could kind of do this, but I really can't, you know, do it, you know, do it, you know, all on my own. Um, an example of that, back to writing, um, my, that same publisher that connected me with the, the person with the Harvey at the UN, 
um, they said, you know, 9-11 had happened. So this is right after, you know, 99 and all that era of being really busy. And she said, hey, would you write a book, you know, about, you know, I had done a lot of work with children and trauma clinically. And she said, would you be willing to do a book on something around terrorism? And I said, well, you know, I can talk about trauma, I can talk about kids, but I can't really talk, you know, about that, you know, in a great way. And she said, well, what if you edited it? So again, rather than me going back, <clears throat> like the getting started or getting better, I'm trying to become, you know, a quasi expert or a pseudo expert or a journalist, you know, reading about all this stuff, putting it into a cogent story and then presenting that story more journalism than expertise. Um, I said, you know, well, let me, you know, go back to my network. Let me just, you know, toss this idea out. I did. And, you know, people were very interested in doing that. And so then that led into that project. So for me, it was, you know, it's there, there's downsides to editing a book too, of, you know, the herding cats kind of a thing, making sure everybody hits deadlines and all these other kinds of things. But um, it's, it was one of those things where if I, it was either no totally to the project or kind of saying, you know, do it, but I can edit it. If you want me to edit it, let's talk. If you don't want me to edit it, then it's going to have to be a, a you know, a full stop. No. So kind of um, slowing down in those ways and having more of a willingness to say no um, really then causes you to have a focus of saying, well, what's really important to me? Where do I, you know, what are my, my priorities? Um, what are the things? And some things could be a priority, but just, I didn't have the bandwidth to do it. So, you know, I would have these sober conversations with my wife and say, Hey, you know, there's this thing and she's a psychologist too. So she, you know, gets all this stuff. So, um, you know, what do you think about that? What should be, you know, should we be doing that? Should I not be doing that? And we didn't always agree, <clears throat> but it was very good counsel. <clears throat> pardon me, to be able to kind of suss those out. And the meta process of that, then I think sort of helped me have a framework to say, well, what is important? You know, what's coming up in my life? <clears throat> and also, you know, that life, life happened during the, the 2000s. Um, my wife, uh, you know, we've lost both of our parents and I had a big climb planned and uh, my wife's mother had a heart attack. So it was like, well, I'm not going to go on that climb, you know? So again, it goes back to what your priorities are and willing to, you know, kind of set your values and, and do your best to not, you know, waver from those. And, and at the end of the day, when you look back, you go, okay, well, you know, I can always, you know, figure out a way to climb again, but you know, this is, this is important. This is where I really need to devote my, my time and effort. Wow. It's, it's interesting because I think you, you have to have a long-term vision an availability to, even though you may not, you may not know exactly where that vision is going, an availability to the people you serve. And then you have this whole other life, this personal life that dictates choices that, that are made. And I think, you know, when, when you're running the show and you're the owner of your own company and mental health, which is you, you own, I don't know how your ownership works, but you own several different projects. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And and what's interesting is, is that you have to be able to make decisions on the fly that are very important. And I think clinicians get, they get, they get really, you know, they're, they're, you know, this Chris, they're, they're trained to think a certain way in graduate school. And so um, a lot of fear comes out of that training. Like what happens if I, if I color outside the lines, right. And I, mm -hmm. and I can, and I know that you, you probably color outside the lines more than just about any clinician trained clinician <laughs> that I know. How in the world do you do that? You seem to do it fearlessly. And so what would you say to the, our listeners who might be fearful about even just broaching going over that line, you know? Yeah. Um, 
I mean, I am certainly, um, it's nice of you to say fearless, but it doesn't feel that way. <laughs> so, so thank you. That's not my experience of this. Um, I guess I get, you know, impassioned about things, but man, I am super, super cautious about the stuff that I do. I have been sideways in quite a few international experiences where I've sort of been, let's say, caught in a country or I've had a border crossing that's not gone well, or we've been, you know, approached by someone that's heavily armed and, situations. Um, when it's something kind of more domestic and back home, um, it's, it's the, the risk that, you know, I've always had like a very strong risk management, you know, kind of perspective. Um, when you do humanitarian work as a psychologist, part of it, part of my humanitarian work has been in structuring things and building things like helping create a curriculum for a kindergarten to create, um, in, in uh, Tanzania that gets vetted by the ministry of education. So I'm working collaboratively as a leader in that with others that have much better expertise in education and the Tanzanian culture and collaborative with, with people there and with people um, uh, here domestically. Um, so, you know, those, those kinds of things that you always kind of have in the back of your mind, this level of respect of where, um, you know, it's not a, a West knows best, uh, there's, there's no hubris, uh, you really kind of recognize your place, you're not going to be like the, the proverbial, you know, a white savior kind of thing. Um, the, and there's not a, I mean, you can, you can use the, the ethical principles of psychologists to be able to do that. There's also some, you know, ethical guidelines that are out there just finishing up a collaborative chapter on a, on a book for APA called Go, going global. So a lot of these things have, you know, been very present. There's a growing literature on those kinds of things. So those help you, even though, you know, I, I feel like the, the outside of the lines has been creative and in, in developing things that might not be, you know, parochial per se to some psychologists. There's a lot of international and global psychologists that do this all the time and do it better than I do. But um, to be able to do that with a respect and to do that within a, an appropriate, um, you know, set of ethics guiding what it is you do and, and what it is you don't do. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of been my guiding light with that. And to, you know, to, to always seek consultation, you know, I've always, as, as I'm sure with you and a lot of listeners, you know, you have a mentor. And I found it's helpful to have mentors uh, outside of psychology as well, in particular law, <laughs> you know, so, so my, the guy that helped me start the, the Center for Global Initiatives uh, is a Harvard JD. And he, you know, he always has an eye out, you know, to make sure that everything's, you know, copacetic and good and ethical and tight. And then you can, as long as you're within those kinds of, you know, thick lines, um, you know, then you feel safe and what you're doing is, is appropriate and proper for people. I wrote about that in my book, having in-field and out-of-field mentors and the importance of that. I agree because it gives yep. you that, that extra perspective that, that one needs. Yeah, you don't know what you don't know. That, that's right. You don't know what you don't know. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, you know, now you're using the platform of LinkedIn to talk a lot about um, the influence of the pandemic on our global community and what a what an amazing thing. I know Sarah wants to ask you a little bit about your use of social media and LinkedIn in particular. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I just, you know, you have, you know, LinkedIn influencer status. You have a ton of people who follow you there. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you built such a following and kind of how you've approached using LinkedIn as a as a tool to connect with more people, kind of what you use it for? Sure. Um, I've been with LinkedIn for a while now. Uh, I 
golly molly, probably 2013, I think. I mean, I've been on LinkedIn as a, you know, customer user or whatever um, for ages, but um, I was writing a lot and I find LinkedIn's a really good place, any kind of social media like this, but in particular LinkedIn, um, where people, you can toss out an idea, um, you support it. I, I joke now that it's hard for me to, it's hard for me to write APA style because I'm so used to putting in hypertext links to things. <laughs> and I, I can't write one paragraph with like five hypertext links not being you know, embedded in it someplace because it's sort of like, yeah, here's my point and here's where it is. And here's my point. And please do click this link because they say even more about it. So, um, so that, that's been kind of fun. And, and again, back in 2013, a good, good uh, stretch kind of thing. I don't know exactly um, how it was other than maybe just visibility and, and early in the years of LinkedIn. Uh, and maybe I was just a bit of a different voice because I was like a psychologist writing in the in the healthcare space, the behavioral healthcare space, the global space, a um, little bit of leadership here and there in those domains um, that I could bring a different voice to it. Um, so, so that was great. They invited me to be a LinkedIn influencer. And back in the day, this has uh, changed a little bit these days, but um, they gave you an editorial calendar. So every month there was going to be a focus and there's an expectation that you you deliver on that focus. So then I sort of felt like I was a, a stringer, you know, for a newspaper or something. <laughs> it's like, well, here's this area that, you know, again, back to, you know, the, the earlier questions of I'm acting like a journalist, you know, because I may not have, you know, particular expertise, but yeah, I can go out and research it and I can tell you about it, but not from personal experience or anything. And over the years that then and, you know, sort of evolves, but it was a good, good writing exercise as well. So then it comes back to what, what do I want to spend time? There's, there's certain things in the past where um, I've had these itches that I needed to scratch. I would just, there'd be a topic that I want to talk about. And I just, you know, I, I didn't want to wait 18 months or to get, you know, rejections because I wanted to talk first person that I wasn't going to send it to a, you know, a peer reviewed journal and it wasn't a good fit for a peer reviewed journal. So I could post these ideas out and test them out and get, you know, there's comments and people, you know, are very willing to give you a comment, especially, you know, if it's something that maybe isn't as, as pleasant as you might be hoping for. So, but nevertheless helpful. So that then kind of helps you, you know, uh, formulate your ideas, figure out other perspectives, hear other people's perspectives and points of view. And, and you know, it's very educational and, and very growthful. And then um, over time, as LinkedIn has developed, um, they, you know, I, I would try and focus and kind of have more of this niche that was in um, behavioral health and in research and in, in global health and humanitarian intervention. And then I would start to do these series because I find myself, I was writing kind of so much, it would be like, you know, they like long form, but, you know, not 10,000 words or something. So, so I'd break things up. So I did one on like um, the one I'm kind of like, like topical stuff, like artificial intelligence and how it could not be creepy. And then I would do things about, uh, I had like a three-parter on, on how a lot of research that we do, we find out later, you know, can't be replicated. And why is that? And, you know, just very, you know, I found it just intellectually very curious and kind of freaked me out about, you know, back in the day when I was doing my own studies of like, oh my gosh, what was going on? So, um, so that's all been fun. And then LinkedIn most recently, as Howard was referring to, uh, has started newsletter opportunities. 
So I used to, with my Center for Global Initiatives, just had with my email list, a newsletter that I would put together on a monthly basis and send it out. So it was, you know, subscribers and it's all free and just, you know, kind of a passion project. But then once LinkedIn did that, I thought, oh, this is a way easier format and platform that I'm familiar with. And maybe I can reach even other people because LinkedIn's got a much larger audience than my email list. So so that's been nice. Um, The focus was because I was so concerned about disinformation and problems. And since it's a pandemic, a global pandemic, it seemed kind of a great overlap of what's good science, what's legitimate reporting versus fake news and 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 bad science, which I've written a lot on on LinkedIn, um, that you know I could have this newsletter where I could I would vet things to make sure the sources are good and reliable. Would go to go to town with my hypertext links if people want to go back to the original sources. Give all my citations. This came from you know Sally Smith, who's at the New York Times or whatever, and do that on a weekly basis. And it gets it get it's a little tough because if you've looked at them, you know they're fairly long form, but. Um, they're very topical. So it's literally like week to week. You're not going to read something about the pandemic that's a month old. You're going to read about something that, that maybe you've missed over the course of the last week. And and that's really kind of caught fire. That's separate from the followers that I have. That's got like pushing last check uh, was like around 125,000 subscribers. So yeah, so the, that's the kind of feedback that, you know, it's nice to get that traction and it's like, okay, and that's very motivating. You know, if you had 10 people doing it, you know, the amount of time that I put together do to put it together, I would say, okay, well, this was a nice experiment. And you do that too. There's plenty of stuff that that I've done that, you know, winds up in the trash bin. So, um, you know, this is just survivor bias of what we're talking about. It's the stuff that's publicly available because people see it. But um, it's having that kind of, of, of Umph and and the time now where I'm at in my career to be able to to devote those you know that legitimate amount of time and again it's this nice overlap of I want to fight against bad science or baloney science I want to um, you know these are global issues so I talk about India and I talk about Brazil and I talk about the UK as well as the United States and I talk about you know the different biological aspects of why vaccines are you know legit and important and don't have microchips in them so you know all of those kinds of things um, seem to fit and to me in my head push forward the message of what the center is and it's just another tool to have people know this is this is what our center does we we vet legit science we share it with the public we do it for free you know it's what we call open sourcing humanitarian intervention. That's amazing. And then you also you also have a podcast, Living a, uh, a Life in Full, um, which is like an interview style podcast where you interview people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, that's amazing too. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, and maybe just kind of how it got started? Sure. Yeah, you know, podcasts, everybody's got a podcast. You know, the, the old joke would be when you were unemployed and had nothing else, you could say, well, but I have a podcast. So um, I think it's matured and ripened a lot, you know, over the those years, some some time back. Um, and part of it was, again, I'm just like this nerd about um, wanting to get information out there. You know, if it's, if it's journal articles, if it's newsletters, if it's giving a talk, if it's a book, if it's a whatever. And there's a long tail, a long lead time to getting a book out. There's a long lead time to getting a peer-reviewed journal accepted in the first place. And I've got, you know, wallpaper of rejections, you know, over the years. But uh, the nice thing about a podcast is that uh, you can get it done, 
you can interact with people. Like I'm having a nice time talking with you guys today. It's not like an interview where I'm trying to take copious notes and then get the quote right. And, you know, all that iterative process. It's sort of like, well, other than, than post-production, once the interview's over, you're done. You know, you I, I like, as you know, we were talking off mic beforehand, but I do some write up about that and post to places, but um, it's kind of nice to do that. You can be spontaneous this way. And then you can share that information. I, I recently had a guest guy Spear on, and he talked about something that I'm, I've been trying to adopt, which is learning in public. And I felt like, you know, having a podcast is a nice way for me to sound is to let people know how dumb I am with all the questions that I ask and what I don't know anything about. Um, so, so it's, it, it's a magazine style show for people who aren't familiar with it. Uh, we have people from all walks of life from around the world, a very diverse, neat, fun group of people. Um, most of them still to this day are people that I've known and worked with in, in one way or another, which is fun. Um, and as well as new people, which getting to know them is, is fun as well. Um, and there's typically some kind of humanitarian thread or, or philanthropic thread through uh, their work. Um, they tend to be very complex people, uh, which is fun because they, you know, they, they oftentimes lately it's been because they've got a new book out. Um, but so we talk about the book, we talk about how they did the book. I love getting into like, like you, Howard, with, you know, the nuts and bolts of how did this book come about? But also, um, yeah, I like to talk about them and their bios and, you know, all the other kinds of cool stuff they've done for 10 years before the book came out. You know, that's, that's kind of fun. So like I find that about you. Yeah. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But it's more embarrassing for me. So, so, um, <clears throat> So that's fun. Uh, we drop um, once a month on the first of every month. We're on every platform uh, that I can think of out there. So, you know, if you have your favorite, you know, usually you're able to find us. And we tend to go long form. We, I love rabbit holes. I love stories. Um, and again, the people are, are fun and interesting. And then I write it up on LinkedIn and other places uh, with tons of hypertext links. So if they, they get inspired by somebody, we have, you know, I have show notes on my website so they can learn more about them. They can volunteer and get involved in their projects, things like that. So it's, again, back to the Center for Global Initiatives. It's a way for us to kind of be out there and help um, spread the word, um, inspire people, educate people, uh, turn them on to someone that maybe wouldn't necessarily be like for all of us, you know, we, I, I've learned about a lot of people I would have never heard of had I not listened to somebody's podcast on something. I'm thinking like, why would I have an interest in figure skating? And then all of a sudden, you know, oh, this is fascinating, you know, so uh, we try to be that way. And again, just um, opening up for people to be able to, you know, to join us and to, um, you know, uh, spread the word of whoever's message, if it's getting their book or learning about their nonprofit or whatever it is to help them to help spread the word. And the title of your podcast is once again, Living a Life in Full. And our website, yeah, if you come to our website, um, we've got most of them archived there in the show notes. And it's the website is alifeinfull.org. So people are, you know, more than welcome to come to that. And again, everything's no paywalls, no anything like that, no premium subscriptions. It's just available everywhere all the time. And we'll put all of your information in our show notes today for sure so that um, our listeners can find you on LinkedIn and on your podcast. And uh, I know, um, you know, I, I read a local article about you, uh, about your accidental humanitarian work. <laughs> and um, in that article, it says that you are willing to help anybody that wants to start a nonprofit, you know, uh, uh, for good causes and whatnot. And I hope that our listeners, you know, can contact you for, you know, sometimes I get folks that want to open up a nonprofit adjacent to their private practice mm -hmm. and they contact you about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I go down a rabbit hole with that real quick with you guys? Yeah, go for it. Well, so back in the day, my my JD friend, uh, Ralph Musicant, so tip of the hat to, to Ralph, um, said, I was doing all this work and he said, you know, do you have an oil well in your backyard? Are you funding this all yourself? You know, because we're, pardon me, starting to grow and then having associated costs with it too. You know, like if you have a website, well, that's not free. And pardon me, you do all these things, travel and whatnot. And he said, you know, you need to start a nonprofit. So long story short, he, his wife's also an attorney and we put together the, they did it pro bono and, and uh, put it together for us. So um, everything's humming right along. We had about six, seven projects going on and we're about two years into it. And someone comes to us from Ukraine and they had contacted us. Everybody, we, we don't go search out people. It's like, we don't throw a dart on the globe and, you know, someone finds us. And then we said, oh, you know, or we find them and we say, oh, let's come, you know, be, be helpers. It's the other way around, you know, through our net, back to the network, you know, someone says, I heard you're doing this or you did this. And so anyway, they came back to us. They want to have us partner on a USAID grant uh, to work in something called internauts in uh, Kiev in Ukraine, which are sort of like orphanages for people with profound uh, disabilities. And um, we go, we, we get, start to get into it. Um, I would probably have been the key person to work on it because they wanted to do a, a baseline assessment in this grant of um, what's called the Ward Atmosphere Scale, Moose, M-O-O-S uh, was the author of that, yeah, which you would know. And um, so long story short, it was gonna be a three-year grant and it was gonna require going to Kiev uh, four times a year, once a quarter for a period of you know, 10 days to two weeks. And so we, you know, we hear their pitch and we see what the grant's all about. And then I start, you know, the, the, we, that's that they, they take off and the board and I kind of look at each other kind of sideways going, you know, okay, let's do the math four times a year, two weeks a year. I don't have vacation. You know, we all have day jobs. I should also say too, the Center for Global Initiatives is all volunteer. I don't get a nickel from it. You know, we're all, everybody's a volunteer that, that uh, does anything that they do with it, all pro bono and volunteers, myself and, and board directors, everybody else included. And it was like, you know, I don't either, man, even if I did, you know, am I going to go home back to my thing to your earlier question, you know, being able to say no to things like, oh, hey, everybody, we just got this new deal and I'm not going on spring break anymore with you guys for the next three years or whatever. So it just wasn't scalable for us. And the long story short to that story was that um, the grant didn't get funded, but it all, it, it was a big eye opener for us to, um, to say, we can't, you know, we, we were committed to the countries and the work that we were doing, but it didn't require that much, you know, in-country kind of work. Once we got the ball rolling, it was being partners and providing resources and things to our, our colleagues there. So um, we did a pivot. And as, as you would know from business and, and, and other listeners, probably from practice kinds of things, um, that that's, that's a good thing to do. You know, you, you, a pivot is sort of like, a, if you're not familiar with the term, it's sort of like saying, uh, for us, I'll just talk, talk about it with our situation. We had done a lot. My board said, you know, we've, we know how to use uh, Web 2.0 tools back in the day to be able to do fundraising. We know how to do this. We know how to do that. Um, all of that has value. So I started writing on LinkedIn about how it shouldn't be so hard to do humanitarian work. If someone wants to go out and do a project, um, like if you start a 501c3, a nonprofit in the United States, um, filling out the paperwork and stuff is not a fun nor easy task, especially if you have zero expertise in it. So we, you know, we had attorneys that did that, uh, that have lots of expertise in it and did it, you know, for free. Um, we, there are fees that go along with that. We had to get registered as a company in the state of Illinois. So there's like $750, you write a check to the secretary of state. And there's all these other kinds of 
things and tools of filing taxes. I thought, you know, I, it's a totally different kind of tax form than what we do as individuals or business owners. So I was like, oh my gosh. So um, we 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 found that going through all those processes that we had gone through has value to others. And, and so back to that point of open sourcing humanitarian intervention to say, can we reduce the friction? Can we lower the speed bumps? Can we take down the fences that make it hard for people that want to do something to be able to do that something? So we've done it in two ways. One is to say, some people come to us and say, you know, whatever, I have a friend, I have a family member, I was on a trip, whatever it was, and um, we uh, were in this area and they, um, there's, there's an agricultural start, but they have a really difficult time getting water. And we would like to be able to get a well drilled in this area. Um, so the point is, is that they have one specific project in one specific area. They don't come to me and say, hey, I want to build a drill a well. And I want to uh, create a company that drills wells throughout Africa. And I want to get a board of directors. And I want to get a website. And I want to wait 18 months for the IRS to hopefully say yes to create a 501c3. And I want to, you know, publicize, you know, blah, 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 blah. They say, no. I just want to dig a well. I just want to get a well dug or I want to get a road paved or I want to get a bridge built. So they might have one specific thing that's a one-off thing that, you know, that they've done, done, done and done. So um, we help them do that. We put them together with, with other networks or we can act as a, a fiscal intermediary that we take no, no profit from. If people want to make a tax deductible donation, they can do it to us. We keep a transparent accounting and then provide those funds to do that job. The other kind of uh, group of people that come to us are the are the opposite. They say, you know, this is my passion. I do want to create a five hundred one c three. I do want to, you know, I want to understand what all those hoops are to jump through, and we will do, you know, free consultations on being, you know, how how do I go about that, and kind of almost like you'd appreciate this from a clinical perspective, like informed consent. <laughs> you know, like if we're going to get involved in this, what's what's behind the curtain? So we, you know, I'll have a few conversations with them, you know, at, at length, um, to, you know. Kind Kind of demystify all that. And then what we've done, because we found that the one-offs were, were fine, and we continue to do that. That's still available free anytime. Um, but we put together a, a program uh, that we have uh, two courses available now. So one's in humanitarian intervention, and the other is kind of more of a, a hands-on leadership course of how to go through and build your own nonprofit. So, um, and if people want to, you know, some people just want to learn that. And then we do charge a tuition. The tuition then pays our, we have a faculty that's put together. Um, they're all volunteer. I'm on that faculty. I'm a volunteer. We donate our time and the dollars that come in to support that um, go direct, uh, directly to our center uh, to help support them because I'm a, really the world's worst fundraiser. So I thought I, at least I can provide kind of maybe some extra value with doing that. I like teaching and my, my other faculty members like the teaching. So, so that's all a good thing. And then um, through that process, they can then start to develop, you know, it's kind of see one, do one, teach one, and they can go out and start to, to do their work. If someone doesn't care about the certificate, doesn't need someone grading their papers, so to speak, um, then all of our materials are freely available too, again, just for the asking. So our entire library, our entire curriculum, uh, people can just you know ping me and, and I can give them the links to it. So it goes again, back to our open sourcing humanitarian intervention um, that we hopefully, we've done a lot of this stuff. It saves anybody else that wants to do it from, you know, they, they can Google it. They can do all this research themselves. There's no magic to it. Um, but we've just saved, we've been trying to be a step saver and save the time and the hassle of doing all that. 
That's great. It's like a clearinghouse of resources available to them at their fingertips with yeah. one person among many others, but one you who have developed this whole concept and again, really providing something to really help folks reduce those barriers, lower those mm -hmm. fences, like you mentioned. Exactly what, right. That's amazing. Now, does the, does the Center for Global Initiatives, I think, doesn't it have its own website as well? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so website? it's it is a, uh, it's a bit of a mouthful to type in, but it's centerforglobalinitiatives.org. Um, so, you know, just feel free to go there. Um, there is a ton of, um, we've just recently, I'm also proud of, just, it seems recent because it took so long to get done, but we've redone our website uh, for 2021. Um, I think it's a little bit more navigatable. Uh, we've got downloadable Express uh, Excel uh, spreadsheets uh, for things. We've got uh, lectures that you can watch that are direct links to YouTube's uh, YouTube videos. Um, we've got um, if you're doing international uh, travel work, once we get beyond the COVID restrictions, discounts on airfare. We don't make a nickel off of it, but it's just a, again a way to kind of uh, lower that that uh, 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 limitation of being able to you know get and do things because people don't have enough you know ability to necessarily pay for things out of pocket. Uh, we've got um, downloadable books. I mean, it's just really kind of a uh, sipping from the uh, proverbial fire hose of all the materials there. So it's not like you need to go through and download and read everything, but just to know that it's a resource there, that when you're want, working on a project, oh, hey, maybe the center's got something already there, and I don't need to spend 12 hours on Google to be able to get a hold of it. That's great. What a tremendous resource, Dr. Scott. We're so grateful that you're oh, offering that to our listeners. Thanks. Okay, Thank we you. got one final question for you. I think sure. I, I, I might know the answer to this, but we'll have to wait and see. Okay. Uh, everybody needs something fun to do outside of all the hard work that we do, even when we love what we do. What is your fun thing? Can you share that with our listeners? Oh, golly. Well, <laughs> this should come as no surprise if people have stayed awake, you know, listening to me drone on like this. But, um, you know, there's a lot of stuff I like to do. Um, you know, most of it tends to be outside. Um, and again, it's overlapping stuff. So um, I love hikes. Um, I love running outside. I love trail running. I, you know, I, I've got a gravel bike and a road bike. So I like, you know, once the weather I'm in now and we've moved to um, Wisconsin, northern Wisconsin. So, I'm, you know, wintertime, it's kind of more cross-country skis and, and snowshoes. But um, so I love being outdoors. And then sometimes I also like to um, be on two wheels that have a motor that I feel if I'm kind of tired of pedaling. So um, over the past few years, I've kind of created this um, weird hobby of, um, you know, uh, designing and building and restoring uh, custom motorcycles. So I've had a couple of bikes that have been in some shows and done well. So, um, so I'll probably be tweaking and I've been kind of looking for a new project bike. So it's just sort of you know, kind of fun. I, I have this mechanical bent uh, that I like to, you know, scratch that itch every so often as well, too. So it's, yeah, and it depends on the day you ask me. It's like, you know, right now I'm working on my bike, so I'm kind of thinking more about that. But, you know, I also still love, um, love the writing, love the reading, love the uh, doing the research for the podcasts and reading people's bios and work. So it's, it's varied, but, uh, you know, it still kind of circles back to uh, the more intellectual, you know, uh, stimulating kinds of things like that and conversations with you guys. Which we've so much appreciated. We're we are so you've given us so much information and uh, shared so much of you, which is so amazing um, to get to know you. I mean, you and I have over the years, you know, emailed back and forth, and yeah. I think we had one call a long time ago, and yeah. and I feel like we've gotten to know one another 
uh, and I certainly have gotten to know you a lot more in this interview. And I'm so grateful for you that you've taken your time with Sarah and I to, to speak with us today. Well, absolutely. It's an honor. And I've enjoyed our relationship over the years, too. It's always a big compliment. I feel like there's a, a certain level to books or to um, LinkedIn or whatever that, you know, when you put yourself out there, um, you know, it's sort of like it's, you know, it's your baby. It feels very um, anxiety for me, very anxiety producing. You know, you hope people like stuff and it's so nice and confirming. Like, you know, again, not everybody, you know, you're not always everyone's cup of tea. I get that. But um, it's very reinforcing and it's very nice to be able to have these nice benefits to have these kinds of conversations to develop these kinds of relationships with you. And, and I hope also in the future with Sarah, now that I've had a chance to meet her and start to get to know her. So, um, you know, it's, it's all those additive kinds of things. So then in the future, when something comes up, I go, oh, Howard would love to know about this. Oh, Sarah, this is right up her alley. Oh, you know, it's that kind of a thing that you're maybe uh, top of mind, but not underfoot, you know, of people so that they, you know, that, that they know that you're there to help. If you have a skill set that might be beneficial or be one or two degrees, uh, you know, separation from someone else that can. So more than happy to, you know, share these kinds of things. And if uh, anyone in the audience, you know, if there's something we might be able to help out with or point them in the right direction, that's, that's what I do. I'm happy to do that. We'll have all your information in the show notes. And uh, of course, we're going to be giving these two books away to our listeners oh, later awesome. in our show. So uh, they can have your book and go through that and, uh, and, and you know, help them, help them better their private practice. Uh, Dr. Stout, we are so grateful. Uh, adventurer, humanitarian, podcaster, uh, so much more psychologist. I mean, all the things you've done uh, has been such a great career and you just keep going. And so thank you for sharing so much of, of, of who you are with our listeners and we'll hope to have you back sometime. That would be great fun. Thanks again. I appreciate the time today and you're very flattering. Thank you so much. Wow. What an amazing interview that was. So much fun to sit back and just listen to Chris share about his career and his life and how one thing led to another. He's such an integrative, compassionate, and passionate human being for what he does, from teaching others how to build a successful practice to the Center for Global Initiatives, this wonderful project that has opened so many doors for so many folks and really improved our world. So Chris, we're so grateful that we had this opportunity to uh, interview you. I hope you, the listener, really appreciated this wonderful and amazing interview. Please share your feedback with us. And of course, if you write a review of today's episode and PsychBiz in general, take a screenshot, send it in to Howard at HowardBaumgarten.com. I'll send you a copy of Chris's private practice building material book. And of course, we have a limited supply, so do it as fast as you can before we run out. Next episode, we will be featuring our wonderful interview with Lynn Grotsky, one of the pioneers of practice building, writing, and development. So look for that. We're very excited. And of course, as always, enjoy your practice. And for Sarah Gershon, I'm Howard Baumgarten. Please take a look at our show notes and make it a wonderful private practice day. Mm-hmm.